No, surely he would pay attention to me. There the upright would reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. Sound like anybody you know? And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. He turns on the right, but I cannot see him. These words of Job appear in the third cycle of his controversy with his friends. Eliphaz is just his final speech to Job. It is um, frank and open and even brutal. Assuming the position that Job's sufferings are the result of Job's sins, Eliphaz begins at the end of his sermon to list some of the sins that would produce such suffering as this. And he implicates Job as being guilty of these sins, although he had no evidence of such a thing. It was kind of a presumed guilt. And he finishes his speech with some advice for Job. Beautiful passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 21. And he says to Job, paraphrase, if you just get to know God, everything will be all right. And Job doesn't respond to the charges of Eliphaz, his so-called friend. He just cries out, how can that happen? How can I do that? Oh, if I knew where I could find him. And the burden of this passage is, is this, where is God? Where in the world is God? If I just knew where I could find him. You tell me that I need to get to know God? You show me where He is. I long to find Him. Now I submit to you that that is a cry, not of doubt, but of faith, really. For after all, He does assume the existence of God. He's not an atheist. And He's not an agnostic. He's not even a doubter. What He's saying is, I know He's out there somewhere. I just don't know where. And I know the answer is to find Him. I just can't find Him. For underneath this is the, is the conviction and the assumption that God is. I think that's the assumption most of us live by. I don't suppose there are any atheists here this morning, even agnostics, or perhaps there are not even any doubters here. Most of us have an underlying conviction in our life that God is. We just have a hard time seeing Him or hearing Him. And the underlying burden of each of us is, where in the world is God? Now sometimes people say to me, not all the time, not often, but occasionally, someone will say to me, is there enough evidence really in the world to believe in God? My answer to them is, there's too much evidence not to believe in God. Sometimes, not all the time, somebody will ask me, you know, how can I believe in God? My answer to them is, how can you not believe in God? There's evidence of God everywhere. There's the argument of God's existence from creation. The basic idea of this argument is that since there is a universe, it must have been caused by something beyond itself. And it's based on the law of causality, which says that every limited thing is caused by something else. And since the universe is limited, it had a beginning, it must be caused by someone or something. And this is the way the argument stated. The universe had a beginning. Anything that has a beginning must have been caused by something else. 
Therefore, the universe was caused by something else, and this cause was God. And then there's the argument from design. That is, there's so much design and beauty in our world, and the argument goes like this. All design implies a designer. There's great design in the universe, therefore, there must be a great designer of the universe. Every watchmaker assume, every watch assumes a watchmaker. Every building implies an architect. Every painting implies a, an artist. Every coded message implies an intelligent sender. And the greater the design, the more intelligent the designer. For example, beavers make dams, log dams, but no beavers ever made anything like Hoover Dam. <laughs> you know. And a monkey can sit at a typewriter all day and never pick out anything like it. You know, he can't create Hamlet, that's, that, that uh, tragedy. Shakespeare did it on the first try. And there's such tremendous design in this universe, it demands a designer. And then there's the argument of mor from moral law. Not only is there power in the universe and intelligence in the universe, this universe is based on moral law and order. The argument goes like this. All men are conscious of an objective moral law. Moral laws imply moral lawgiver. Therefore, there must be a supreme moral lawgiver in this universe. I mean, the problem this morning is not the reality of God, not with me and probably not with you, not with Job. The problem is, where is He? And how can I see Him? And how can I hear Him? And how can I get to know Him? I submit to you that there is a possibility that God is not as distant or absent or uninvolved as we may suppose. I guess that most of you have read that uh, sentimental poem called Footprints in the Sand. You've read that, haven't you? It's about this guy who's going through this difficult time in his life and as he looked back over the difficult experience, he felt that he was abandoned by God because he saw only one set of footprints in the sand and he felt he was in this problem in this difficult time alone because he saw only one set of footprints. God's response was that there was only one set of footprints because that was when God was carrying the struggler. It just may be that the reason why God seems so distant is not because of His absence, but because of a condition in our own life. It may be that we're looking for God in the wrong place. He said, I go forward and I can't find Him there. I look back and He's not there. I, I can't see Him on my right hand and I can't see Him work on my left hand. An old Puritan was reading this one day and he got so caught up, he cried, Well, Job, look up. You're looking in the wrong place. A number of years ago, by a man by the name of Carl Valentin, he was a Munich, he was a comedian from Munich, a tragic comedian. Gave birth to a satire that's used often. As a matter of fact, I've heard it even in Aggie jokes. And the curtain rises on a darkened stage, and there's just one light on this stage, the light of a flickering candle. And there's a man standing in the circle of that light, and he's searching for something. He's looking for something. He's lost. After a little while, a stranger steps into the circle of that light and asks, what are, you, what are you searching for? He said, I've lost some coins. He said, well, I'll help you find them. And so now in the circle of that light are two men searching for coins. After a while, the stranger says, we've searched everywhere. I don't believe the coins are here. Are you sure you lost them here? He said, no, I, I lost them over there. 
And he pointed to an area of the stage that was totally dark. Over there, he asked, then why are you looking for them here? There's no light over there, he replied. Now, it just may be that when the darkness of doubt and death and despair and depression settle in on our lives, we just can't imagine God could be in this. God's abandoned us. He's he's not in this. The only place you'll really ever find God is in the stages of life that are lighted. The only place you'll ever find God is or in the sunshine days. God's not here. It just may be that it is in the dark where you're most likely to find Him. And the psalmist cried, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. And the scripture says that when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, there was thick darkness. And watch this tremendous statement. And it says the people stood a great far off while Moses went into the dark where God was. It just may be that it is in the darkness where you most likely will find him. Martin Luther said, we give the wrong impression at Christmas time when we stretch our colored lights across the windows, for God is most likely to be found where men are lost in the darkness. You may be looking for him in the wrong place. And you may have so much stuff going on in your life that it clouds your vision of him. What does the psalmist mean when he says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And what did Jesus mean when he said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And another time he said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved to my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. You know what Jesus was saying? He's saying the only conditions of finding God is that you cling to his commandment like a treasure and you follow it like a road map. It may be that before you'll ever find him, ever see him, ever hear him, if he's distant and absent and far removed from you, is that you may have to put some stuff out of your life. Zorin Kierkegaard, the great, great Danish existentialist, has a parable about a teacher of a fifth grade class. We have anybody teach at fifth grade? You won't admit it. Had a, had a, had a, a teacher of a fifth grade class, and he said every morning the children would reluctantly leave their toys and they'd drag themselves to school, get there just at the time of the bell. Not late, but never early. They'd leave their toys reluctantly and they'd dawdle around before they got to school, got there just at the bell. And when the bell rang in the afternoon, they bounded out of school like, can't wait to get out of here. They headed home for toys and fun. Everybody did that except one. There was a little girl who came every morning early and helped the teacher prepare the room. And when the bell rang in the afternoon, she always lingered to talk with the teacher and clean the blackboard and and be with her. And finally one day when the the distraction got so bad, the teacher pointed to the little girl and said, Why can't you be like her? Why can't you be like her? She loves school. And a little boy stood up in protest. He said, That's unfair. She's got an unfair advantage. What is her unfair advantage? She's an orphan, he whispered and sat down. Now you know the the meaning of that parable, don't you? 
that the measure to which man finds himself in the conscious awareness of God is the degree to which he feels a need for that. And the measure to which a man finds himself in the presence of God is the degree of his hunger for that. So that while you say, oh, I wish I could just find God and get into God's presence, that may not be totally true. That may be just lip service. For the degree to which you long to be in His presence is the degree to which you're there. Now there is within the nature of God a hiddenness and holy otherness. Listen to me, watch this. There is a degree within the nature of God where God is hidden and unapproachable and there's a purpose for it. In fact, there are purposes for that. One is that God is hidden. There is a hiddenness in the nature of God because God wants to remind us that He sets the terms. He sets the terms upon our knowing Him. Now listen to me carefully. God sets the terms whereby we come to know Him. So that if you come to know God, or if you come to the place where He is more than just a word, and there is dialogue and relationship and fellowship, if you come to that place, it'll be on His terms. It'll be on His good time. It'll be His way. And it is absolute arrogant presumption for a person to say, well, I'm just not ready yet. Listen, folks, you don't get to know God when you get ready. You get to know God when He gets ready. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, in the wisdom of the Lord, the world by wisdom knew not God. Now, what he meant by that was this, that God thought it wise that man in his own intellect and ability not know and investigate God. Man comes to know God when God moves in revelation. And if you hear God knocking at the door of your heart and He's calling you, you better open the door while you have a chance. The prophet said, Seek the Lord while He may be found. There's a second reason to the hiddenness of God. And it's that, that God knows that we'll never grow up and we'll never learn life as long as God's with us all the time. And you say, well, I thought God was present with us always. I'm talking about, I'm talking about smothering us and, 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 and dominating us and, and intimidating us. Are you with me? I'm talking about that kind of presence where God allows us no freedom and He pulls us on a string like a puppet. That's not the way God deals with us. God deals with us like a, like a parent look, watching his child out a window. Now I want you to get this picture. Your child's five years old or six going to school for the first time catching the bus. What do you do? You take that child by the hand and you go out to the bus and you help the child on the bus. And you probably do that for days or weeks, maybe the whole year. You, you walk out. You, but there comes a time when you have to let that child go out and catch the bus by himself, right? I mean, you... Can you see a mother with a five-year-old child going out and helping the child on the bus? I can see that. I can't see a mother with a 15-year-old boy going out. I, I have seen, you know, I, I have seen that, but it's really weird. You know, and, and, and so, so the mother, when, when a child gets, you know, I mean, but what happens is that there comes a time when, 
when, when the mother and the father, they, they stand at the window and they watch out the window and they give us freedom. Now listen to me carefully. There may be a time, you may be in that experience right now in your life where it seems that God has just abandoned you and it's just so dark you can't see where you are or where you're going. Right there, God may be teaching you life's greatest lesson. You're growing there. You're learning life there. And understand that God is observing and is not going to let you be destroyed. I love it. And the paradox of the hiddenness of God is this. Is that the more God became visible, watch this, the more God became visible and real and undeniable, the more resistance He received. That's specifically true when He came in flesh. For as He began to encounter man in, per, in the person of Jesus Christ, the more man became aware that God was in Christ, the harder their heart became toward Him. Now why is that true? Well, there's a certain, there's a certain danger in the presence of God. Now listen to me. You better be careful if you say, when you say, I just wish that I could find Him, I wish I could come into His presence, you better be careful when you say that because there's a certain threat that implies, that's implied in that. There's a certain danger in that because God will not allow you in His presence uncertain conditions. In fact, He told Moses, take off your shoes. Now, if the burden of this passage is where is God, we haven't got the answer yet, have we? Where can I find Him? Well, the answer to the question is we find Him in Jesus. Holy, totally, personally acceptable and available. Accessible. You remember when Jesus met with His disciples in the upper room? And he told them he's going to prepare a place for them. He was coming back someday. And one of them said, you know, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And Philip said, if you just show us the Father, it'll suffice. You know what Jesus said? You remember that, don't you? He said, he rebuked Philip. And he said, you mean I've been with you all of this time and you still don't know Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What is God like? He's just like Jesus. Fond in my memory this morning is that little farm on which I grew up. wasn't too hot for me. I didn't think that much about it then, but I do now. The farther I get away from it in time and space, the more important that old farm was where I grew up. I remember my father occasionally would get some samples of the soil and he'd send them off to get it analyzed report would come back, too much potash, too much whatever. And, and that way we knew, you know, what would grow best and what fertilizer we needed and all that kind of stuff. Now that vial of soil didn't tell us all there was to know about our farm. Didn't tell about that Mozart post that anchored that fence, went around the Sudan patch where we kept the milk cows. Didn't tell about that watermelon patch that Dad raised along a turn row and the old scarecrow that the crows fussed at all the time. But it told us enough to know what was there. Now when you read the Gospels, they're like a slideshow of the Father. 
by every word and every deed and every encounter, these flashes of light come upon the darkness of what God is like. And Jesus just says over and over and over again, you want to know God? You want to know what He's like? He's like me. Here He is. Here He is. I want to show Him to you. He's, he's right here. He's in me. I and the Father are one. And one of these days, when we get ushered into the Spirit kingdom, and we're ushered into the presence of God, we're going to say, I'm not surprised, for I saw enough of you in your Son to know you were exactly like this. You, you watch television, sports events. And have, you, have you seen these guys that get behind where the camera's going to focus and they hold up these signs like John 3, 3 and Ephesians 2, 8? There's a group of people that go around the country doing that. That's their ministry. And they'll get at a big golf event like the Masters, and they'll get over there where the guy's fixing to tee off, and, and here you got this guy, you know, getting ready, and there'll be a guy behind him with John 3, you know, 3-3 three, three sticking up there. The other night I was watching the World Series, and a crucial time at bat, they zeroed in on the batter, and I looked up there, and this guy had this yellow sign with black letters, God is Jesus. He is and Jesus is God. And Job says, where is he? And Jesus says, right here. Look, right here. Look, right here. Here he is. As near to you as the word Paul says in your mouth. That is the Lord Jesus. James Buckingham tells this story, and then I'll quit. Buckingham is a pilot of a small plane, an, an, an author. And he said one day, about, he was about 20, 10 minutes out of Jacksonville, Florida, when bad weather set in. And so he radioed the, the, the traffic control tower, and the, and the guy at the traffic control tower said, I'm going to put you on Jack's radar. And he said, that, that caused me no small anxiety because he said, I wasn't instrument rated. And he said, I, I, I told him, I said, I'm not instrument rated. The guy said, it's okay, you're under my control. You just relax and do everything I say. And, and, and Buckingham protested. He said, I, I don't know where I am. He said, I, I've, lost, I've lost sight of the railroad tracks I've been following. I have the slightest clue where I am. The traffic control tower the guy in the control tower said, I know exactly where you are. I got you right here on radar. Now you do everything I say. In about two minutes, you'll be on the ground. Buckingham said, I was, under the, I was on control, but there was somebody else in control. And he said, I, let, I reduced the throttle and I lost altitude and I banked 90 degrees to the right, just like he said. And lo and behold, there was that long runway stretched out waiting for my landing gear said, Buckingham, there are times when you are lost and the darkness settles in and out of the hiddenness of God there comes this still small voice. I see you, son. And if you'll surrender to my control, I'll bring you home. said, Buckingham, when a man by faith yields the control of his life to Jesus Christ. 
he finds the Father. Where is God? He's right at the end of your faith in Jesus Christ. So the issue this morning is this. Is there anybody here today who by faith, not by feeling, not by the senses, not by sight or hearing, by faith, would surrender his life to the control of Jesus? And by faith, you tell him, I yield the control of my life to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that out of the ignorance and the uncertainties of life, you entered the human drama, the human event. Not just to show us God or show us the way to God, but to be that way. God in flesh, descending the stairways of heaven with a baby on his arms and in a moment of time becoming flesh. That you might take us by the hand to the Father. I pray, Father, today that if there are those who have not yielded their life to Him and to His control, this will be the moment they'll do that by faith, not by feeling, simply by faith. For I pray in Jesus' name. Now there are three invitations. An invitation this morning for you to come and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, to surrender your life to Him, where you open your hand and empty your life to Him, surrendering its control to Him. Thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God raised Him from the dead. You shall be saved. An invitation for you to come this morning, you who have wrestled the control of your life away and assumed it again yourself. The surrender of your life to His Lordship or to join our church, whatever God leads you to do, the first word of our invitation, you should be coming while we stand to sing.